record. Okay, so um, this week's Torah portion. This week's Torah portion is called Akev. Akev means because. Akev also means a heel. And the verse begins with Akev Ashetishmaun, because you will hearken, you will listen to my voice. And uh, Hasidic mysticism and insight is that we have to be so totally saturated with, with all of God's commandments that even our Akev, our heel, should be in obedience to the Torah and mitzvahs. So it's not just the mind and the heart, it's our very body and all the organs. And as explained in many different teachings, how the different commandments relate to different organs. For example, going to help another person, going to shul, going to study Torah is the feet. The studying Torah is the mind. The giving charity is the hand. The um, praying is the heart. So it has to saturate our entire body. Now, this week's Torah portion, being part of the book of Deuteronomy, Moses again is giving review of everything, and Moses is speaking very consciously to a generation that is going to leave the protective clouds of glory, leave the isolation of the desert, and enter into a country, will have to deal with setting up government, setting up interrelationships with other countries, with other people, with other religions. And thus Moses is extremely concerned that they remember to remain faithful. And what you're going to find in Deuteronomy very often because of this is that Moses continuously speaks of idolatry. Now, I want to pause for a moment and tell you that you and I don't really wrap our heads around idolatry. Idolatry isn't something that's even done by, um, you know, the Western Hemisphere for sure not, whether Buddha is the Dao, that, that, that thing, that form. But generally speaking, we don't deal with idolatry. And, and most opinions say that even Catholicism, Christianity, uh, Jesus isn't looked at as idolatry. Um, uh, so we don't really deal with this notion of idolatry. And we don't really understand what was Moses so concerned. Why was it that almost every king of the ten, ten tribes of Israel, some of the kings of Judea, the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin, why were they so plagued with this idolatry? Why did they put up idols in the holy temple? What, what was this all about? So I want to just share with you that the Talmud tells us that the reason why we don't understand idolatry today, what is the temptation of idolatry? You know, <laughs> I'm never tempted to, to find another religion or idol worship. I'm sometimes tempted with bearing the weight of my religion, but I'm definitely not looking for any idols. And the reason is because the Talmud tells us that the sages at some point they got together and they were willing to put a ban against 
the evil inclination, denying it to be able to challenge us with idolatry. Now, there's always a price to pay, and our, our, our sages tell us, the commentaries tell us, that when they weakened the evil side, automatically the holy side got also weakened, and that's when we stopped having prophecy. We went into another stage of sages. Now, I just want to put this out there as part of the whole story of that piece of Talmud, that you should know they also put a ban against sexual um, temptation. And this, the Talmud goes on to say that they have to give back to the evil inclination half of the power of sexual temptation because people and creatures, animals, were all stopping to be reproductive. Thus, God gives us these hormones and temptations because through it, we continue our species. Now, I wanted to know two things, obviously, <laughs> you know, not in a humorous way, but yeah, in a humorous way, you know, if this is half, <laughs> I am sure happy I didn't live in those days when it was more than just half. But on a more serious note, what does it mean they gave back half? And our sages tell us that you will find in the times of old, even in the house of the king of David, there was incest. And our sages tell us that what they did not give the, the uh, evil inclination back the power of sexual temptation is specifically concerning incest. Thus, we do have the general temptation of sexual behavior, and we don't have the, the power, the temptation uh, that much of incest. Now, that's just getting off topic because you keep on hearing in Deuteronomy, idols, 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 and we don't really connect with it. With that being said, I do want to give and share my own personal, nothing I saw in the holy books, my own personal understanding of how idolatry is, is in our lives today. And I'm not going to go down the route of money is idolatry. No, we'll leave that for others. I want to just share with you that one of the difficult challenges in Judaism where God has no form, no shape, and yet we have to have a tangible, a tangible, practical relationship with God. That creates problems. Because even before they had FaceTime and, and, and WhatsApp calls, video calls, I, on the phone, would always try to picture who I'm talking to. It's just the way the conversation was not abstract, but real. And very often, that becomes a struggle in prayer. I'd like to know who's on the other end of the line. Who's on the receiving end? So I'm going to look at idolatry now, not as a golden stone shape of the moon and the stars or whatever. But I'm going to talk about idolatry as in being able to completely leave go in the formless, infinite, 
Now, when we say formless and infinite, I even have to leave go of metaphorical, emotional, or spiritual images, such as saying that God is kind, God is just. In truth, those are all forms and shapes, and we can't even say that. We can say what God said. I am, and I will be what I will be. I don myself in whatever emotion needs to be then, whether it be justice, kindness, compassion. So really, if we want to talk about what does it mean not to be, get caught up in any form of idol worship, it's being able to leave go of trying to box God into any form or shape of tangibility so that I can have what I would feel comfortable with a practical, tangible God that I'm talking to. And thus that becomes a whole different ball of wax. And then you have the whole teachings of Kabbalah and Hasidus that in truth, God is everything. And in everything I connect with God, and yet there is no image or shape of God. Now, with that being said, I also want to discuss one more little mystical topic um, on this opening of the Torah portion before I go further. And that is that last week, the, the Torah portion began with Moses praying to God, let me see. Maimonides gives an insight that what Moses really wanted to do was he wanted to be able to implant within the Jewish people not only a hearing connection of faith, but also a seeing connection of faith. When I see something, it becomes internalized and 100% true. And you can ask me all the questions, how it's impossible that I saw what I saw, but I know what I saw. When I hear something, even from someone that I so truly trust, but if you come up with very powerful questions, really? I mean, I understand he didn't lie to you, but really? How could this be? How could that be? You start having questions. So really, last week's Torah portion and this week's Torah portion are two different levels of faith. That in which I see and that in which I hear. This week's lecture, I always send out lectures beside the Zoom Parsha class, will be on the mystical insight of what does it mean, the level of faith in which I hear rather than I see. Now let's move along. A lot of things that's happening here is that, God, that Moses keeps on telling us that you should know that if you hearken to the voice of God, God will give you good. And there's very interesting physical, physical promises. Now, normally we say that the reward for Torah study, mitzvot observance, and what we do, the acts of goodness, is not in this world, but it's in the world to come. Paradise, and then, and then even after that, when Mashiach comes, the resurrection. And Maimonides explains that there's a teaching that there's nothing in this world that could justifiably be a reward for our service of God. 
because it's physical and it's finite. Thus, Maimonides interpretation to when the Torah gives promises of physical reward, such as wealth, produce, rain, or whatever it may be, he sees it as God saying, if you do what I ask you to do, I will make it possible for you to do more. So the physical blessings that we get from doing mitzvot is not the reward of the mitzvot, but rather let's lean upon that teaching of our sages and ethics of our fathers that one mitzvah leads to another mitzvah, and the reward of one mitzvah is the opportunity to do more mitzvot. Thus, if I don't have health, it's very difficult to be able to pray properly, study properly, do mitzvot properly. If I'm poor, and so forth and so on, that makes it difficult. So God says, you start doing yours, and I'll be making it more and more easier for you to do more and more and more. Now, another thing that um, we're going to talk about here is that Moses also tells the Jewish people on the border of Jordan as he's about to pass away, he tells Joshua and the people, do not be afraid. You know, there's an interesting saying I heard from a Muslim Uber driver in, in uh, Toronto. An interesting, uh, just really interesting conversation. And he, he started quoting to me a story of what happened with Muhammad's student. Now, I, I'm, I'm not giving credence to the religious or whatever. I just want to share an interesting story. He told me that when Muhammad died, Muhammad had a student. He told me the name. I don't remember. And I guess that guy became the next, um, the successor. And he came out to, his, to, to, to the Muslim students and then people there. And he said to them like this, if you believed in Muhammad, Muhammad died. If you believe in Allah, Allah is still alive. Now, I want to share with you that I see Moses telling the Jewish people, don't be afraid, doing in a certain sense that concept. Don't ever get caught up in thinking it was me, Moses. I am nothing more than a tool in the hand of God. And thus the God who did the miracles through me, telling me to perform them, is the same God who's going to do it through Joshua. So don't feel fear because if Moses is dead, how can we conquer Israel? I think that's what Moses was telling them over and over. Don't be afraid. You saw what God did through me to the first two kingdoms on the other side of the Jordan. You see that God gave you the manna. You see that God had the clouds of glory. And he reminds them of everything. And he keeps on pulling himself out of it so the Jewish people can very easily realize that the same God, the same power, will now work through Joshua. Another interesting thing, when he talks about the man, here we have a mitzvah. So there is what we call in halacha, birchat hanehenin. Birchat hanehenin means 
that you always have to make a blessing before you enjoy anything and after you enjoy anything. Thus, for example, not always after, I'm sorry, and I'll explain to you why. Before it always, whether it be you're going to go ahead and smell a beautiful fragrance, there's a blessing to make. Whether it be you're going to eat something, there's a blessing to make. Now, when it comes to food, you see fragrance on the spot, you enjoy it, and then after that, it's gone. Food, after you ate it and you enjoyed it on your taste buds, you're still having benefit from it within your body. And thus, when it comes to food, for that reason, we're taught that you also make an after blessing. Now, here is the rule. All these blessings are not biblical, they're rabbinical. But to one exception of this week's Torah portion. V'achalta usavata uberachta et Hashem elekecha. And you will eat, and you will be satisfied, sated, and you will bless God, your God. So we know that it's talking about an after blessing because it says first you will eat and you will be sated. We also know it's talking about a specific case. For example, if I grab the bag of chips, I can't say that that's the type of food that after that I'm sated. Thus we learn out that this is only concerning a meal and a meal is defined by eating bread. And that's why whenever you eat a meal that has bread, challah, matzah, any one of that category, you have to make the grace after, after the, the meal. And that is a, the only biblical blessing that there is. Everything else is rabbinical. Now, I want to just give you a little bit of history here. The blessing is made up of three primary parts. And then later in history, there was a fourth part added on, which actually has nothing what to do with grace after meal. And till this very day, I don't know why the sages attached it to grace after meal. I still have to do my research on that. However, the first blessing is called the blessing of sustenance. This was made by Moses. The second blessing was made by Joshua, and it's called the blessing of the land. Birchat Haaretz. It's where we talk about thanking God for the land of Israel and the bread that comes forth from the ground, from the land. Remember, Moses' blessing was food that came from heaven, the manna. Then the third blessing was in the times of King David. Once Jerusalem was established as the capital, we have the blessing of Jerusalem. Now, the fourth blessing has to do with a story that happened, a terrible story that happened in Betar. There was terrible, terrible bloodshed, and the, and the enemy didn't allow for the corpses to be buried. And then finally, when they allowed for the corpses to be buried and given their true final respect, so the sages created a blessing. Now, again, what that has to do with the grace after meal and why did they do it there? I don't know the history behind it. I'm sure there is a history. It's just my ignorance, and I'll have to look it up. Now, another thing that God tells us is, Moses tells us is, that beware. We all find God in times of trouble. Very often, 
We forget God in times of abundance. And therefore Moses says, I'm telling you that all these blessings are going to take place, but don't let that mislead you into self. I can do this by myself and you're going to turn away from God. Moses reaccounts what happens in the second, the breaking of the first tablets upon his descending and seeing the golden calf and then going back up to get the second set of tablets. Also, another verse I want to point out, which is discussed in the Talmud, I want to briefly tell you about that, and then I'm going to get to the primary focus of what I prepared. There is a verse here, which almost seems to someone like me, who struggles painfully, to be taunting. And the verse reads as follows. And Moses all of a sudden gives a turnaround in the middle of his speech to all the people and says, Viata, and now, What is it already that God's asking from you? What do you make such a big deal out of it? But to fear God. And the Talmud says, Really, Moses? You think fearing God is such an easy thing? What are you just ridiculing? What is it that God already wants from you but to consistently fear him? And again, we're talking about a healthy fear. We're talking about the type of fear that when you're in your office and you're tempted to do something, you remember that God is watching. That's what we're talking about. We're not talking about no awesome meditation, Kabbalah, simple fear of God. And the sages actually, you know, they're asking Moses, what, what, are, you, what are you saying? What are you saying here? Now, parenthetically speaking, not from this piece of Talmud, but from a different piece of Talmud, I want to share with you that God does not take it lightly when people ridicule other people that deal with serious struggles. The great Rabbi Akiva, everyone heard about the great Rabbi Akiva. He started learning when he was 40 years old. He was a resurrection of Moses. And then the greatest, either way, a reincarnation, not resurrection, I'm sorry. Resurrection will happen only after Mashiach comes. He was a reincarnation of Moses. And he one day, after studying and becoming the great powerful sage that he became, one day he ridiculed in his heart, what is up with these people and their sex issues? I mean, come on. I mean, there's different temptations, but really? What's up with the sex issues? God heard him ridiculing in his heart, and God did not find it favorable. And God said, really, Rabbi Akiva? You, the righteous who's protected by me, you're going to ridicule the others who struggle? And God told the evil inclination, you now have my permission to tempt the great and holy Rabbi Akiva sexually. The Talmud tells us, that the Yetzirah manifested himself in the form of a beautiful woman sitting on the tree across the river. And Rabbi Akiva got so overcome with obsession to be with that woman that he dived into the water, swam across just to be able to have sexual relationships with this woman. And the minute he got out of the water, God told even the evil inclination, stop. You cannot tempt him no more. The Talmud says 
that the evil inclination told Rabbi Akiva, would your master God not have stopped me? I would have left you like a strain, like a sift full of holes. That's how powerless you would have been. And God told Rabbi Akiva, you've got your spirituality. Don't be mocking or ridiculing others for their struggles in their relationship with me. Go back to what the sages are asking Moshe Rabbeinu. Yeah, Moses, sure. If God spoke to me and I was up the mountain studying with God and I came down and at any moment, God would just tap me on the shoulder and say, oh, Moses, I want to talk to you about this. Oh, yeah, I'd be such a good boy. I, I just wouldn't have anything. Of course I fear God because I see the glory of God, but I don't. I see the glory of Wall Street. I see the glory of physicality. So what does it mean that I should just, ah, what do you want? He just wants you to fear. You can do that for him. So the Talmud gives an answer, which the Alter Rebbe in Tanya does not say, he says, no, 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 this can't make sense. The Talmud says, in, yes. Klapi Moshe, in the realm of Moses. Yira milse Fearing God is a very small thing. The Alter Rebbe says, whoa, 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 whoa. Sages, what did you ask and what did you answer? You asked how Moses can call it an easy thing because for us it's not easy. Moses wasn't looking in the mirror talking to himself. He was talking to us. So what difference is it to me that for Moses it's easy? Thank you, Moses. Blessed be Moses. But for me, it's not easy. So what are you taunting me? Therefore, the Alter Rebbe says that what the Tanya is, what the Talmud is really teaching us is that within each and every one of us, there's a Moses and there's a Pharaoh. And the Moses within us, to him, God, seeing God, feeling the presence of God, feeling the awe of God, is very practical. And thus, our job is not to create a fear for God, but rather to allow what already exists within us to shine out. And therefore, in Tanya, we talk about the war between the good side and the bad side is not a war of one against the other, but rather one is trying to cover the other so that we don't see it or feel it. And the, our job is to let the inner one shine out. Just practically speaking, practically speaking, there are times where I can feel the furthest thing from being Jewish, being spiritual, being connected. And I can then go ahead and say, listen, you know, I get, or I can say, no, 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 no. I know what's going on. I have a soul in me, but right now I'm not experiencing it. I'm disconnected from it. All I need to do is find a way to just have a little tiny keyhole opening for that soul to shine out. And I'll see that the mirage was not my spirituality, but in my denying my spirituality. That is what that verse really means, according to the Talmud and according to Hasidus. 
Now, what I want to talk to you about is that in this week's Torah portion, we have the second portion of the Shema. So you know that the, the, ultimate, the ultimate declaration of faith is the Shema Yisrael, here, O Israel, God is our God, God is one. Now, with that being said, the Shema is made up of three portions. One portion was last week. In it, it talks about accepting God. The second Torah portion is in this week. In it, we talk about accepting God's commandments. And the third portion actually comes from earlier, which talks about primarily, it talks about the tzitzit, the fringes, the talit. Uh, but the reason why we put it there primarily is because it talks about the um, exodus of Egypt. And the reason why we connect it with the Shema is because the whole concept of Shema is about experiencing exodus. And exodus means not from the Egypt of 2004, it's actually 3,300 something years ago, but the year 2,448 from creation, but rather every day we're in Egypt. Yesterday's freedom is today's slavery because we're supposed to even grow out of that. And thus connecting with the Shema and acknowledging that God is everything and everything is God. And thus there can't be no exile. There can't be nothing that stands in the way because we are all part of him. That's what the Shema is all about. Now, that we've spoken about in the past. What I want to share with you is one verse. And when I heard this interpretation, it was the first time in my life that I've had a true transformation from a God which I always was suspicious of in being mean, harsh, sometimes even unbearably expectations to a total different God. It was the first time I had that little opening of a window. Maybe there's another way to see things. And that is in the verse of the Bahaya Im Shamoa, there is an unbelievable verse that says, and if you follow the ways of God, God will give you the reins and everything will be good and sweet. Now, if you don't listen to the God, he says, beware. And if you don't listen to God, and it goes on to say bad things are going to happen. And the opening of those bad things is a priceless verse. And the anger of God will rage upon you. Now, I want to share with you a story, and you will see how this verse, which seems to be that God is a God of retribution, suddenly changes. The previous Rebbe, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak of Lubavitch, he spent 10 years as a Rebbe, he spent more years in Russia, but as a Rebbe, he pretty much spent 10 years in leading Jewry in Russia, then he had to leave. He was 10 years in Poland. And then the last 10 years of his life, he was in America, Brooklyn, New York. Now, when he was in Poland, one day, he came to shul late for Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur. Who comes late on Yom Kippur? He was late. And after all of it was over, his, his uh, it's called a beetle, a shamish, his, his person who would be there, asked him, Rebbe, why, why were you late? To Yom Kippur Davening, you never come late. And he said like this. He said, when I was walking to shul, I passed a different shul. And the window of the other shul was open. And I heard a Jew praying 
heartfelt, emotional Yom Kippur, the Holy Day of Atonement. But obviously, he was such a pure heart, but he wasn't gifted in learning the meaning of prayers. And therefore, even though he was praying fiery and with passion, he was using wrong pauses. And when he came to this verse, as I was walking by, I heard him read like this. The af pause. Hashem bachem. Now, grammatically, that just destroys the verse. So for this, I have to tell you the exact literal Hebrew translation. So it won't make sense in an English sentence. Vechara, raging, af, anger, Hashem, God, bachem, in you. And the Rebbe said, everything is from Shemayim. If I had to hear on Yom Kippur a Jew reading the verse so grammatically wrong, there must be a hidden message here. And he told his, his Gabbai, and I went into a meditation. And he said, Givald, Givald, listen to what this Jew is saying. Even when God's anger is raging, you should know Hashem Bachem, God is still in you, God is still with you. And he said, and that was the meditation that took me through all my prayers. I was talking to someone who was struggling with his relationship in God. He was brought up in a religious house, just like me. And you know, God is used as, as a weapon. You know, you know how parents tell their kids, if you don't finish all the vegetables, the police are gonna come. And then they wanna know why kids hate police. But the same was done with God. Oh, you do this. Oh, remember God's watching. Remember God's watching. And even though they mean so well, I start having a relationship with God the way the Jews in Russia had a relationship with the cops. Nothing good is going to come out of this. Just stay away. And he was talking to me about this. And we were identifying and we were discussing it. And I said, I got to tell you a story that I heard. And I told him this story. And he looked at me and he said, thank you. He experienced what I experienced. Maybe this angry God who's always watching, never watching in the sense of protection, always watching to see if you're doing it right or wrong. Maybe this God is the outcome of the baggage of my parents struggling to try to be able to discipline me. It's not God, it's not Judaism, it's not spirituality. Because spirituality says, yes, God is always watching. Not to see if you're making mistakes, but to make sure you're safe. But if God is always watching, he sees me do a lot of bad stuff. What then? So remember it, I, I'm even sharing with you the sing song in which the, the previous Rebbe repeated it. I want you to know that since that day, 
every single time I get to say the prayer of the Shema, I race through it. Ah, of course, I'm very busy. But when I get to that verse, I give a little pause. And maybe I shouldn't admit this because it's online. And uh, I'm going to admit it anyway. And it's not right what I do. But sometimes I even have to add a word. When I say, And then I add on a word in Yiddish. Hashem Bochem. You're not supposed to add on words in Shema. You're not allowed to actually. But sometimes I slip because I can't just think it. I have to say it. And that word means nevertheless. He's angry with what I'm doing. Hashem Bochem. God is with me. Nevertheless. And I want to close at least my dialogue part, my, my monologue part with one more story. So I read a book that one of my classmates wrote, and he basically interviewed all the people that used to work with the Rebbe of Righteous Memory directly. So there was a secretariat, and then there was the person who worked in the Rebbe's house to take care, to take care of the Rebbe's in traveling places, take her to the doctor, whatever it may be, fixing things, maintenance. And his name was Gansberg. That's his last name. His name is Gansberg. And when he, in the interview by Gansberg, he was telling different things, and he said a story. He said that one time he botched up. And the Rebbe was upset. And the Rebbe was, you know, passionately expressing that he was upset. So Gansberg said, so I started defending myself. Yeah, but. And he said, and the Rebbe just looked at me and said, what's emphasis do? Why are you answering me? And Gansberg goes on to say, how he understood it. Now, if he understood it that way, and he always had his stories with the Rebbe, that means he understood that that's the way the Rebbe works. He said, right, he, he says in the interview, he says, the Rebbe was telling me, what are you answering me? This is not about you. I'm not upset at you. You don't have to justify yourself. My upsetness is with the act. That's it. And I, I think in that story, I, I get emotional. We weren't brought up that way. I don't know, maybe some of you were. God bless you and God bless even more your parents. We were brought up that very easily we slipped from the sin to the sinner. We're not upset at the sin. We're upset at the sinner. And if you do it that way, then you have to read the verse. Literally. The Chora Af Hashem Bochem. God is angry, flaring, raging at you. But if you can understand what the Rebbe was saying to Gansberg, you don't need to hide your face, you don't need to justify, and you don't need to answer me, because this was never about you. God is raging against sin. But you, Hashem Bochem. God will always and is always within you. Not something easy to understand. Not intellectually, it's very easy to understand. But when we are the products of our primary caregivers that went through the most dysfunctional generation in, in, in history of mankind, just because I understand it 
And just because I repeat it, doesn't mean that it's so easily I feel it. And thus, every time you say the Shema, you're racing, you're in a rush, just try to remember this and pause. Don't add on words, you're not allowed to, but at least say it every once in a while with that sing-song, with the pause. The Chora Av, and then think to yourself, and nevertheless, Hashem Bochem, people thank you. I'm opening up. Unmute. I think I just muted. Okay, I don't know how to unmute. Even though I do it every week now. Anyway, so guys, just unmute yourself and go ahead. Feel feel free. Here, I'll just ask everyone to ask to unmute, ask to unmute, ask to unmute. Okay, people, I will also go ahead now and, and shut the recording so people feel free to say whatever you wish. <laughs>